0: And would you all please join me and stand for the reading of God's word. All right, our text this morning is Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power Well, if it's your first time joining us, welcome. Um, This whole year, we have actually been doing a prolonged series. We called it the Year of Biblical Literacy. And the idea was, sorry, I'm trying to start the timer on my phone. Trust me, it's for you, not for me. Um, The idea was, is that as a church, we would walk through the major themes of the Bible together and the major characters and really understand the story of God in order to make our story a part of God's story. And along with that, most of you know we did um, the Read Scripture app, which had um, daily readings that you would do. And we're almost done. I think we are in, uh, we just finished 2 Thessalonians um, yesterday. And I, I don't know about you, but it's just been good for me just to walk through Scripture again. And Honestly, the last couple days reading through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, I was shocked. There's just things in Scripture I just forget. I tend to kind of do like a 30,000-foot view, and I forget sometimes the minutiae, the details of it. And so anyway, it's been, it's been a great adventure. Um, and all that to say, we are coming to our last series within this year series, um, and we're calling this one The Moral Vision of the New Testament, so, the moral vision of the New Testament, I want you to think about that for a minute. The moral vision of the New Testament. What, is, what do you think that means? What does that mean to you when you hear moral vision? And when we think about the Bible, and I think especially the commands written in the Bible, we can often think of the Bible as simply that a set of various commands and a religious rule book. You'll remember if you were here with us, uh, though, at the beginning of the year, we discussed this very thing. The Bible is not so much a rule book, um, but it is, first of all, a story. It is the one and only true story from God. It contains laws, commands, statutes, principle, wisdom, so on and so forth, but they show us how life works best. They show us what God created the world to be. And of course, it follows the storyline of what happened to the world, how it got so messed up, why there's so much suffering in the world, evil, and what God has done to redeem it. So the Bible is a story, it's about God's way. It's about his kingdom way. And it tells us this story from God's point of view. As I said, what went wrong and how it will finally be put right through God's anointed king and rescuer Jesus Christ. He is the hero of the Bible. The one to whom it all is leading up to and to whom it will all culminate with. So the moral vision of the New Testament then is about how we now live in light of that story. It's about our lives being consistent with this story or maybe more specifically how our lives continue to tell the story of God. Now What we're going to do, we're going to cover the moral vision of the New Testament for the next four weeks, but I think what we have to do before we do that, you know, we spent the last, I think, five or six weeks talking about the character of Jesus. We were in the Gospels. It was great. But so much of the New Testament was written, actually, all of the New Testament, none of it was written by Jesus. It was written by Jesus' followers and mainly the apostles, and so we need to kind of deal with some of the apostles here, and I think specifically we need to deal with Paul. Why? Well, first, Paul wrote a large part of what we call the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of the 26 documents making up the New Testament. That's 25%. So besides possibly Luke, Paul is the greatest contributor in terms of quantity to the New Testament. So it's really important that we understand him, we understand his point of view, and kind of where he's coming from, and kind of his mission, Secondly, we have to deal with Paul. and This is mainly what we're going to focus on today. Because Paul is simultaneously beloved and hated. Paul is honored and reviled, readily received, like, oh, how refreshing, how powerful, how beautiful, and vehemently opposed. Now, some of you might not be privy at all to these conversations, Um, but people love to hate Paul, okay? Especially in academia, people love to hate Paul. In fact, one author, Karen Armstrong, wrote a book called St. Paul, the Apostle We Love to Hate, or another, J.R. Daniel Kirk wrote, Jesus have I loved but Paul, Jesus have I loved but Paul. And maybe you feel this tension as well when you read Paul's writings. On one hand, you feel deeply inspired by Paul. Deeply inspired. You feel deeply challenged. And maybe on the other hand, you're deeply bothered by what he says. You think about this. Jesus announces the kingdom of God to the poor. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' whole mission was to include people in these celebrations of the kingdom. His whole mission was, remember, he would eat and drink with those who were far from God. He would declare the kingdom of the God to those who seemed like they were outsiders, those who didn't belong with the religious elite. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand, it's moving among you. We love Jesus Now, some accuse Paul of totally making up what we call Christianity today. Jesus and the early Jesus movement, they say, was this wonderful thing of love, inclusion, and freedom. But then Paul came along and systematized, sterilized, and ruined everything. So Jesus says all these things about inclusion and God's love and this and that. Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed against the godless. How many of you love to read Romans chapter 1, right? And you're just like, wow, this is beautiful and inspiring. Probably not, right? No, Sermon on the Mount is where we want to go to be inspired and be stirred up. Paul said, expel, excommunicate the immoral person from your church, Paul says wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, then there's Paul's views of women and slaves. What is with Paul's view of women in church leadership, right? And the different interpretation that surround that. Or How about this, when Paul addresses slaves and never says a negative thing about their slavery. What's with that? Who is this guy? He doesn't seem to be in the spirit of Jesus who said, the spirit of God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to preach the gospel to the poor. It it seems to be different than that and almost opposed to that. Karen Armstrong says Paul is an apostle people love to hate. He has been castigated as a misogynist, a supporter of slavery, a virulent, authoritarian, and bitterly hostile to Jews and Judaism. Some, right, consider Paul a misogynistic, homophobic, bigotive, oppressive, perverter of all of Western society. As I said, people love to hate Paul. I think it's really important that as the church in this day and age, that we, as God's people who believe that the Bible is the story of God, that it is authoritative, that we understand Paul. That we can understand where Paul is coming from and we can speak informatively about where Paul was coming from and what Paul's vision was. So we're going to talk about that this morning. So, first of all, what was Paul the apostle about? Now, nine out of, let's just say this first of all. This, this has to do kind of with a just misinterpretation. Think of the game telephone, just in the back of your mind, just put that away for a second, right? Nine out of ten times, the problem that people have with Paul are simply misunderstanding or not knowing the context of the letter or the first century culture that Paul wrote in. The other, you know, one in that, nine out of ten, know exactly what Paul is saying, and they just don't like it. Okay, so those are kind of the, the pie chart, if you will, right? Now, think about how many of us have problems communicating with people in our own language, in our own culture, in our own times. I imagine that you had something like this happen to you this week on a thing called Facebook that's really good for communicating and understanding the nuances of uh, arguments and relationships. Maybe, maybe you had that problem this week. We are reading documents that are 2,000 years old from a man that spoke a totally different language, explaining things even more ancient and nuanced. Maybe we should cut Paul a little slack. Maybe we should be a little more humble that we might not understand all the nuances and the context of what's going on in these letters. You know, so many times we come to the Bible and we are the judges. We want the Bible to prove itself to us. And so we're standing there and we're, you know, just ripping it to shreds. And we're like, we're trying to make it fit into our way of thinking. But the only way the Bible will actually transform your life is that if you come to it, humbly if you come to it with this desire to understand and know and you say honestly because this is the truth i do not know i do not know everything i do not know most things i am here to listen i am here to learn i am here to receive i think it's truly only those who come with that posture will get anything from the bible and only those who come with this full humility and subjection to God's story will be radically transformed by it only those people so who was paul i think it's really important that we understand kind of paul's background and what happened to him so paul he tells us in many of his letters he was a jew He was a professionally trained Jew, professionally trained in the Hebrew scriptures. And he went around the known world creating communities of house churches from all different cultures, languages, and backgrounds. He gathered them around the table. This table that was about unity, It was about oneness. It was about equality. These people would eat a meal together. They would gather under the name of Jesus Christ. They would sing songs of worship and praise together to Jesus Christ. And they would come to be conformed to the image of Jesus and to the story of Scripture. Paul the Apostle went around unifying the world like no one had ever done before. I think, just again, like that whole hubris thing that we were talking about a moment ago, just step back and think, how is America doing on that project of uniting all people? How are we doing on that? See, we come and we attack the Apostle Paul. We come and we attack the scriptures and we think that they are so misogynistic or bigoted of these things. But look at what happened with the early church. Look at the walls and differences that were brought down. Look at how these people could gather in homes, that they would sacrifice their lives even to death for one another. Think about the unity and yet the diversity that was in the early church. How is America doing on that project? We're not doing so well. And I don't think our country gives women or people of color or different cultural backgrounds, half the respect and value that Paul, the apostle, called the church to give. We read from Romans chapter one. I just want to read it one more time, and I want you to listen to Paul's introduction here because it tells us what Paul is all about. It tells us how Paul is inclusive, but also how he is exclusive, and that's kind of what we're talking about this morning so once again, it reads, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, a sent one, an ambassador of this message, set apart for the good news of God, this good news that God had promised beforehand through his prophets and the ancient scriptures concerning his son, his son who was descended from David, the king, according to the flesh, And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord or our King, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faithfulness for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul says. Look, this is what happened. God fulfilled his promises, just as he had said long ago through the prophets, this is the heir. This is the Messiah, the king, the one who, who all the scriptures said would come and would rescue and redeem us. It's happened. It's happened. And so Paul is this ambassador. He's this proclaimer, a herald of this message. And he, wants to, and he goes around everywhere telling everyone The king has come. God has fulfilled his promise. But look what he wants to do. He wants to bring about the obedience of faithfulness. That's Paul's mission. It's not just about getting the message out, but it's also about conforming the world, conforming all peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues to the obedience of the faithfulness of Jesus. This was Paul's mission everywhere he went. Now, it's really important to understand Paul's backstory. Paul had once been a Pharisee. He was a radical persecutor of the church. And Paul, in in many of his letters, tells us that he had been zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And in other places, he speaks of this zeal. Now, Many times we just say, like, oh, Paul is this self-righteous bigot, you know, who just thinks that he can keep the law, and by keeping the law, he goes to heaven, and he's the only one that's in, and only the Jews can be saved, and everyone else is out. That's not really accurate as to who Paul was and what Paul believed. Paul uses this term, zeal of the fathers. Now, this term is used in the narrative of Scripture only a few times, but specifically, The Pharisees would often talk about the zeal of Phinehas. Anybody remember this story from Numbers? It's a radical story. Okay, So the people of God are on their way from Egypt to the promised land. They've been given God's law. They've been told that they're like no other, that through them, God is going to fulfill the promises of Abraham to bless the whole world. Here's God's law to keep them unique and preserved and to show the world who God is. Right? It like does backflips and gainers and so far ahead of Hammurabi's law or anything like that, right? It's totally progressive. It's amazing. But what happens is God's people begin to compromise by mixing with the idol worshipers of the nations around them. And in this one particular story, uh, these women have come into the camp and they're having sex with the different men and what they're doing is they're leading them into idol worship. And in this one Certain scenario, this guy walks his, like, lady friend past all the elders of Israel as they are crying and mourning over the sin that's happening. And he just kind of walks his lady friend by them just to say, like, hey, check it out. Like, I don't fear God. I don't fear anything. Like, look what I'm going to do. And he's, like, walking to his tent, and they're going to go, you know, do the deed, right? So this guy Phineas, who is—this is Char's translation of the Bible, by the (laughs) way— Everybody's like, "Do the deed." That's not in my Bible. Um, uh, Phineas is the grandson of Aaron, the high priest. He sees this, and while all the elders and leaders of Israel are crying, he's just like, "Heck no! Like this isn't going to happen." So he grabs a javelin, he chases them, he chases them down. He goes to the tent, and while they're having sex, he runs both of them through. And we're like, "Holy smoke, This is insane." When this took place, God says this, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my judgment and my wrath from the people of Israel because he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous or zealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This guy is Paul the Apostle's role model. If you were to go into Paul's bedroom as a young teenager, Jewish teenager, Phineas is the poster on the wall. Okay, guys, that's how this was, right? The Pharisees saw themselves as following in the way of Phineas. Now see, this is what we need to understand. Paul says, I thought I had to do many things contrary to Jesus Christ. In Paul's understanding, Jesus is a false prophet. He is a false messiah specifically because Jesus was crucified. The law says cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This cannot be God's messiah. He was crucified. He was under a curse by God. And he is leading God's people astray. These men and these women and this group that followed him are leading God's people astray, and this will bring the judgment of God and prolong the exile. This will bring wrath and judgment upon Israel, just like in Numbers 25. Just like when Israel went into exile in Babylon, it's the same thing over again. They're following false teachers, false prophets, and Paul will do what is necessary to stop it. He will even be judged for being a murderer. He will take that upon himself. The Pharisees will take that upon themselves to purify Israel. That is who Paul the Apostle is. He's a radical, and he's willing to do whatever is necessary to protect and preserve the people of God from sin and evil at all costs. But what happens? What happens? This is radical. Paul is on the way to Damascus to arrest those who follow Jesus. He has authority from the high priest. And as he is on the way, it says that Jesus appeared to him. He's risen, glorified, and it changes everything, right? So what happened in Paul's mind? You know, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What do you want me to do? Go into the city and I'll tell you what to do. So what happens in in Paul's mind, Jesus is not dead, but is risen, glorified. remember, it it says this specifically in the accounts. Jesus is shining brighter than the noonday sun. Okay, in all other accounts of scripture, that is called the Shekinah. It is the magnificence, the majesty, the glory of God. Jesus, who once was crucified, is now alive speaking to Saul of Tarsus, and he is shining with the Shekinah glory of God. This meant for Saul of Tarsus, Jesus was truly Messiah. His shining glory is proof that he was the Son of Man, who though crucified, was resurrected, ascended to the right hand of God and is seated there with all authority, with the authority and the glory of God. This also means then that all the promises of what God intended for Israel have come true, and this is what we need to understand, in him. All the promises of God to Israel have come true in Jesus. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the one who redeems Israel. God had done it. God is king again through Jesus Messiah. See, Paul understands God's promise back in Genesis 12. Remember, God said through Abraham he would bless all people, he would bless all nations. Now, Paul, through the revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus, came to believe and understand that all the promises of God to bless his people and to bless the whole world through them had come to pass. In Jesus, the new age has dawned, And this means that the time has come to call all nations to allegiance to the true king of the world, to Jesus the Messiah. The time has come to announce the good news of God's reign to everyone everywhere. And so from this day forward, this is what Saul of Tarsus, or as we call him, Paul the Apostle, is all about. This is Paul's vision and greatest passion because of his understanding of the greatness of God's love and what God had accomplished through Jesus, this is, first of all, what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to invite everyone to respond to the gospel. That is the inclusive Paul. It's for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you come from, what your cultural background is, who you worshiped before, it doesn't matter. Christ bore the curse of sin for us, and now in him, We can be justified, we can be sanctified, we can be glorified in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Messiah, God has done it. What he always promised to do, tell everyone everywhere. So this is what he did. He traveled all over the world and told anyone and everyone. Second, Paul is working to bring about the obedience of faithfulness. Faithful obedience to Jesus the Messiah. And this is the exclusive Paul. It's for everyone, but it's about conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what this movement is about. Paul, remember, he planted local churches, local gatherings with leaders and members. And they practiced a common way of life by the power of the Holy Spirit under the reign of Jesus and Paul's vision was to unify all humanity then with Jesus as the center and focus. Only the gospel, the victory and rescue of the world through the one true God was big enough and great enough to include all people. I think if you make this, and I know that's, maybe that's a long description of who Paul is, you know, to kind of like just have in your back pocket as you're reading the epistles, but... I think if you, if you have this as this, your center of gravity when reading through Paul, it will make much more sense. The inclusive Paul, God has done it. Tell everyone everywhere to join God's family, to join God's kingdom, but it's all about the obedience of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Again, Paul saw this vision happening through local communities, gathering and living life under this new ethic, centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Paul's one great passion was to unite all of humanity, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave or free under King Jesus. And he says these kinds of things again and again in his letter. Um, Quickly, I just want to read from Ephesians 2, 13 through 22. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, Now in Messiah Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down through his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. So making peace... And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. By doing this, he killed all hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Hear what he's saying there? What? God did through Jesus is He tore down all distinctions of, you know, who's in and who's out, who belongs and who doesn't. All of that is removed. So now male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, all have equal standing before God. Scott McKnight in his book, A Fellowship of Difference says this, Paul made sure that the earliest Christian churches were made up of people from all over the social map, and they formed a fellowship of difference. Yes, typo is intended. Full of people who certainly did not agree on very much, except perhaps that life in Roman cities was really dirty and difficult. That's about the only thing they would agree on. And this was the heart of Paul's mission, to create a fellowship of difference and difference a mixture of people from all across the spectrum. See, Paul believed that the church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing different people together to the same table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. A new kind of family. You know, we, we talk about America as the great social experiment but truly the new, the radically upside down way that that contradicts every culture and at the same time maybe affirming certain aspects of culture but contradicts and challenges every culture is God's new family, God's way of living, God's new ethic. And this is what Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, did. He went... Around everywhere, forming these communities. Christianity was the great equalizer. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Baptism was one of the key symbols. And through baptism, think about this the rich Jewish landowner was baptized, and also the Gentile slave was baptized. The houseless person was baptized. The rich. An affluent was baptized. Everybody was baptized. Everybody had sins that need to be forgiven. Everyone needed repentance. Everyone was given the same gift of life. And when they gathered to sing to Jesus and to eat at the table together, all of the things that make them different outside of the family of Jesus, all the boundary lines, socioeconomic or ethnic, that create power and relationships and differences of privilege and so on and so forth, Outside the church community, all of that gets erased. How incredible. How are we doing on that? Like, oh, yeah, you know, our church community, oh, but, but, you know, we've got these bleeding heart liberals in our church, you know, so there's that. And I know that that's what we talk about because I've heard Oh, you know, this, but, you know, this political stance or this view on, you know, whether you vaccinate or homeschool or send your kids to school or whatever you do. We create boundaries and differences and walls. We construct what Jesus has torn down. No. The church is supposed to be a place where we celebrate the difference through our unity in Jesus Christ. That's why we always want to be a Jesus-centered church and a gospel-centered church, because this is what it's about. Jesus Christ, who has torn down the hostility and the wall of separation. So outside of Jesus and the gospel and conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, you do you. Like, we should be okay with that. Paul did not go around, and this is something that we need to understand, and I'm totally getting ahead of myself here, but it doesn't matter, because here I go, right? Paul did not go around doing colonialism, That's not what he did. He wasn't like, okay, you got to be Jews. Some people tried to do that. You have to be Jews and you have to be circumcised and you have to eat this kosher diet and you have to do this. And he says, no, you Jews worship God through Jesus Christ in your Jewishness. You Gentiles worship God through Jesus Christ through your Gentileness. It was a fellowship of difference. And that was celebrated. There was nothing like this in the world and there has nothing been like this in the world since. Everyone was given the same gift of life. Gathering around Jesus, sharing this fellowship. So when they walked into this gathering, they understood we are one family in the Messiah Jesus. I cannot tell you how different I am from my brother. And this is neither here nor there, but my brother goes to uh, you know, cosplay conventions every year. This is like he loves to do this. And him and you know, now his wife, they love to dress up. And they have different outfits. Like, they go with different outfits. And they're going to do wardrobe change and everything. Like, they just do this thing. And I cannot tell you how for so many years, I was like, i got to change my brother. i got to fix my brother. i got you know, to do this. And I've done this with probably every member of my family. And I remember one time specifically, it had to do with my mother, God just challenged me, and he said, you know what, Char, your biggest problem is you don't actually love your mother. You love you, and you want to make your mother like you, and you want her to do the things that you like. You don't care a whit about your mother, and I was just like, oh, my gosh, it's true. I love me, and I love when my mom likes what I like because I'm all about me. What a jerk. And, and God had to do this radical transformation of love people as they are, as God has made them. And that's what the community of God's people is to be about. We're one family. You know what? Everybody's got weird cousins and weird uncles and strange siblings, and that's the greatness of a family. There is this diversity, and yet we share this one name. We have a unity to us. We share the name of Jesus Christ, and we share his image. We're all moving towards that center of becoming more and more like him. Now let me just say this, and I know I was on a tangent for a minute, but I'm talking about this unity here. When we think of what is excluded in the New Testament, and especially by Paul, I want you to understand that it's always in terms of what does harm to others. Why does does the New Testament speak? Why does the Bible speak against this stuff? It seems to be excluding people. It is excluding harm. It is excluding everything that falls outside of what does good to your neighbor, what loves others. In fact, Paul would lay out this standard and principle for all the churches. He said, it is all about the law of Christ. This is what I want you to be about. If you're going to be about one thing, be about the law of Christ. If you're going to follow one rule, follow the law of Christ, which is this, bear one another's burdens. To owe no one anything except to love, he says, for whoever loves has fulfilled all the law. Everywhere he went, this is the statute, this is the principle, this is the command that Paul set up. So when Paul forbids sexual practices, he forbids things that make humans into objects. Objects that can be used by others and then discarded. He forbids what fosters social breakdown and injustice. Because God is about order, God is about life, God is about peace. Why does he forbid this? Because it does not follow in the steadfast way of God's love for us in Messiah Jesus. We give Paul a hard time because he called wives to be submissive to their husbands, but he also called husbands to be both self-sacrificial in their love and faithful to their wives and says that husbands' bodies belong exclusively to their wives. I just want you to know that this was absolutely unheard of in those times. A husband could basically like, have sex with his like, boy servant or a prostitute or whoever he wanted. But... The wife belonged exclusively to the husband. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, nope. You belong exclusively to one another. The husband actually does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. The wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. The gospel was the great equalizer. Though Paul does call slaves to be obedient to their masters, he also reminds masters and slaves that they are no different in God's eyes. They are equals and need to treat one another first and foremost as brothers in a family. He also warns masters, you will stand before God and give an account to the great master, right? You think about what, again, just what Paul was all about. I love this passage, and I had never understood it before. And even the NIV translators, they try to to change this. And I think... It was it was missing this nuance of scripture. But in Galatians, Paul claims that everyone who is in Christ, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, or free, he says, You are all firstborn sons, or you all are all sons of God, crying out, Abba Father. And translators are like, Oh, no, no, just write children of God there. This is the problem. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that every single one of you, whoever you are, if you are in Jesus Christ, you have The inheritance and right as though you are firstborn sons of God. This was absolutely unheard of for women and for slaves in the Roman Empire. Paul, Jesus, the early church lifted these people who were oppressed for centuries from their status and lifted them to equal standing in society. When they came into that room, there was no difference, total equality. Before God, But as I said, Paul is not trying to create homogenous communities, right? That's not how Paul is exclusive. And I talked about you know, cultures and the way that we have tried to go in and colonize, and sometimes even in our missionary efforts, we've gone in, we've, we've you know, tried to push our American culture or British culture onto these different uh, areas of the world. And, and, and saying it in the name of the gospel, this was never Paul's practice. As I said, the Jew is to remain a Jew, to worship God through Jesus in their Jewishness. Gentiles are to worship God in their Gentileness all through allegiance to Jesus. Has there ever been a nation on earth that has done this successfully? I mean, you think about it, right? Not just that you have people from other countries and culture living in the same general vicinity. We have that. They're called ghettos but all centered around and united around one common goal and way of life, loving and serving one another, and yet still distinctly holding to their particular culture. This is unheard of outside of Christianity. And yet, this is what the the local church was like. A fellowship of difference. Where am I at here? Five minutes. I'm, this is amazing. I have so much time. Okay, so Rodney Stark... Uh, let me just say this as a side note. How many of you have read Christian history? Okay. This is, this is something that needs to change. 2020 is the year of Christian history for Refuge Christian Fellowship. Go out and get yourself a good book on Christian history. Rodney Stark, uh, The Rise of Early Christianity, uh, Alvin J. Schmidt, How Christianity Changed the World. These books will radically encourage your faith. Uh, you know, I remember um, remember Bernie Sanders' his uh, his slogan for running a few years ago. Uh, I was already here. That's how I feel all the time. Like I hear like you know, Democrats and people talking about social justice and everything that we're going to do, and I'm just reading the Bible and I'm like, we were already here. Like the church has been doing this for thousands and thousands of years. Like we set up all the hospitals, we set up all the arts and culture and universities. This is what the church has been doing, cultivating humanity and life and And uh, and when we read Christian history, it connects us to that narrative, to that story. This is what the people of God have always been doing. So 2020 is the year of Christian history for refuge. Okay, anyway, Rodney Stark, an amazing historian, he says this, "...early Christianity served as a revitalization movement in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social bonds that were able to cope with many urgent urban problems." To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, the Christians offered charity and hope when there were no other social institutions that existed to help the poor. Where do you think charity, like in the way that we think about it socially started, it started with the church. The Roman Empire didn't have any social systems to help people. It was the churches that innovated these systems. Listen, he goes on. To cities filled with strangers and newcomers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for social attachment. And so you can see, because it had nothing to do, you can see how this happened, because it had nothing to do with your gender. It had nothing to do with your class. It had nothing to do with your income, or with your place in society, or with your ethnicity. It only had to do with you coming to see the love of Jesus that he showed for you in his life and death and resurrection. This is what drew people together, that God had done it through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So when we there were cities filled with orphans and widows, the Christians offered new and expanded, a new and expanded sense of families. To cities torn by ethnic divisions, the Christian communities offered a new basis for social solidarity. It wasn't just simply a, you know, a new urban movement. It was a new culture. It was a new way of being human beings in the world, and it was capable of making life in the Greco-Roman world tolerable. I mean, when you read the histories of what life was like back then, you realize that Christianity, it really did. It changed the world. It turned the world upside down. Now, we're almost done here. But this is, I guess I'm, I'm closing now is what I'm trying to say. I'm closing the It's a journey. You really can't get more inclusive than the gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel that Paul proclaimed. Everyone is invited to join God's kingdom, and yet it is exclusive, even as Jesus said, right? Sometimes when we were like, oh, Paul, 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 are we forgetting a lot of what Jesus said? Do you know that Jesus spoke more about judgment and hell than anyone else in the Bible? I think what we like to do is we like to just remember certain things that Jesus said because they were very inclusive. But Jesus also was exclusive. Remember, he said, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ we must submit to. It's his rule. And it is this exclusive piece that people, and even we ourselves, often resist. Now, This is kind of a side, but this is kind of the way I want to wrap maybe kind of a, this is what God is calling us to do as a church or as a people or as individuals into this sermon. I don't know if you feel like this, but sometimes it seems to me that the church and even we ourselves are almost waiting for God to do something more. And let me say this. We believe that God does move by his Holy Spirit, that God brings revival to his church to save and rescue people. We believe that God will one day make all things new. He will restore all things. But let me just say this. Paul saw what God did in and through Jesus as the climax of the story of the world. It was the defeat of sin, evil, and death that happened at the cross It was the resurrection from the dead, what every Jew had been waiting and waiting and waiting for. The resurrection. Remember, Martha says it. She says, oh, Lord, I know my brother will rise again on the last day. And Jesus says, no, Martha, you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. What every Jew was waiting for was not a day, but a person. And we will hear his voice, right? And it says that the dead will rise because of his voice. He is the resurrection that happened. The ascension of the Son of Man to the right hand of God. The Jews poured over Daniel 7. When will this happen? When will God restore us? When will his kingdom take place? Well, it happened. Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, and he is seated there, the Son of Man. Daniel 7 has happened. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah spoke of this. Ezekiel spoke of this, the giving of the Holy Spirit, new hearts, God's presence here on earth with individual people, the gathering together of the people of God in one family. This is how the apostles saw it in Acts 15. Look, the scripture said God would rebuild the tabernacle of David and the Gentiles would seek the Lord. It's happened. Jesus is the new temple and the Gentiles are seeking the Lord. The breaking in of the new age and the rule of God's kingdom had taken place. This is what Paul believed. Messiah has come. The resurrection has happened. The new age has dawned. The climax of the story, it's over. It's done. What are we waiting for? Go and tell everyone. That's what Paul's mission was. To get this out to the end of the earth, to tell everyone everywhere, the king has come. God has done what he always promised to do. So go tell everyone, live this life of the kingdom of the heavens in every nook and cranny of the world today. And as I said, I'm not saying that there isn't even more to come. God will return to judge the living and the dead. God will make all things new. God breaks in by his spirit to revive his church to save and rescue people. But I am saying this. I think we have come to minimize what God has already done. Let me say this. The story is just about over. It's already climaxed. C.S. Lewis said this, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your mind to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have already chosen. Whether we realized it before or not, now... Today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Now, of course, Paul is or excuse me, C.S. Lewis here is speaking in terms of choosing God for salvation, but I, I would appeal to us, church, it's already done. What are we waiting for? If we're waiting for that moment where the trumpet sounds and Christ appears, it's over. It's over in terms of the mission of God and the salvation of the world and getting that message out. And God says to us again and again and again in the Gospels, the climax, the king has come. It's already been accomplished. Go tell everyone everywhere. Live this life of the new ethic of the people of God. Live it out. Live that fullness of life that John promises us in his Gospel that Jesus came to bring. So Paul traveled the known world implementing the reign of God through Jesus Christ in local communities gathered around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These communities were living out God's kingdom reign where everyone, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people were welcome. Welcome to join this community, this community of honoring Jesus as their king and following his way of life until he returns. Paul invites us to do likewise to be a colony of heaven in the country of death, to be a community of the spirit, to proclaim and implement the reign of Jesus until the Lord returns. So as we close out our time together, I would challenge you as, as we worship, as we come to the table, as we have a time just to pray for one another, to pray with one another, to seek the Lord together, I would challenge you, ask yourself this question, Lord, am I waiting for something more? God, am I not recognizing what you have already done? And then, if I am, Lord, fill me with that like hope in what Jesus has done. Maybe I need to go back to the story again. I missed something along the way. I, I'm waiting for God to do something more, and God's looking at me saying, No, you do it. I've done it all. Walk in it. Take it by the hands. And so I I invite you to, to, to contemplate these things, to wrestle with this. God, have I just kind of overlooked these things? Are you looking, you know, I'm waiting for you. Are you waiting for me? I'm looking at you. God, are you looking at me? And have that exchange with God. Have that conversation with him. And see how he will answer, see how he will direct you to walk in, to take hold of eternal life, even as Paul exhorted Timothy to. So, Lord, God, we, uh, how tragic that we could be uh, your people and we could miss, Lord, the, the, the hook, the, this climax of the story. That we could overlook it, Lord, that we could overlook, Lord, your victory Your accomplishment through the cross. I think of what the writer of Hebrews tells us again and again. That if all of those things that came before were a shadow. But Christ is the essence. He is the true. He is the better. He is the real thing. It has been done through him. And now we can boldly approach the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. Now we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We run also, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to take this message of your reign, of your accomplishment, of your victory, of your invitation to everyone, everywhere. Stir up our hearts, Lord. Bring us back to you, Lord. Light us up, Lord, with the power of your victory, with a renewed hope in the gospel, Lord, with a fervor for the obedience of faithfulness to Jesus Christ.